This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode is sponsored by Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is a coding school with the best world-class learning experience you can find. Dev Mountain is a 12-week full-time development course. With only 25 spots available, each cohort fills quickly. As a student, you will be assigned an individual mentor to help answer questions when you get stuck and make sure you are getting the most out of the class. Tuition includes 24-hour access to campus and free housing for our out-of-state applicants. In only 12 weeks, you'll have your own app in the App Store. Learn to code. It's time. Go to devmountain.com slash ifreaks. Listeners of iFreaks will get a special $250 off when they use the coupon code iFreaks at checkout. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 115 of the iFreaks show. This week on our panel, we have James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. Alondo Brewington. Hello from North Carolina. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. One quick shout out. I know this is an iOS show, but I did just launch the Rails Clips video series, putting out one free and one paid video every week. So if you're looking at learning Rails, maybe for some back-end stuff that you're doing on your iOS app, then uh, go check it out, railsclips.com. We also have a special guest this week, and that is Michelle Totolo. Hi, everyone. You want to introduce yourself really quickly? Sure. This week, I am representing Women Who Code, and Women Who Code's a 501c3 global nonprofit focused on inspiring and connecting women in technology careers. Cool. So yeah, so we're talking about Women Who Code. Do you want to kind of give us an origin story? Yeah, so Women Who Code was started in San Francisco as a meetup back in 2011, I believe. I really should get that right. And so it started out as just a meetup in San Francisco. It grew to a couple other locations. And then in 2013, we filed for 501c3 status with the IRS. And since then, we've kind of exploded. So we do all sorts of different technical events, everything from study groups, hack nights, lightning talks. San Francisco is our largest kind of network. We call them networks with over 5,000 members. We have over 30,000 members worldwide, and we're in 18 countries. And we've put up more than 2,000 free events. That's awesome. So you're trying to help women get into coding or create opportunities for them to find jobs or all of the above? I mean, what's what's kind of the stated mission? All of the above. Our stated mission is inspire women to excel in technology careers, whatever that means to the woman who's going to the events. Most of our members are engineers in the field. According to our latest survey, um, we did do a survey that would be about 60% of our members are working in the field as engineers right now. We have a significant percentage who are learning and, you know, trying to get into the tech industry, but most of them are women who are just looking to meet other women in the industry because a lot of us are the only women at our job. And it's nice to be able to have friends who you can talk about your job with that have 
been in similar situations or come from a similar background, just like with anything else. (laughs) I have kind of this dry sense of humor and I'm holding it back because I don't want to get in trouble. But yeah, I was just going to say I like having friends who are women too, but it's kind of a different focus around uh, women who code because you find people who are like you, that look like you, that talk like you, that, and you, you can get some of that from your coworkers, even the male coworkers. But yeah, I mean, you know, if I worked at a place where everybody was, was women or everybody was, you know, a different, you know, spoke a different language or, you know, a different cultural background. Yeah. A different cultural background. I get it. And to a certain degree, I can also see where this uh, makes a difference because when I go to conferences and stuff, you know, I don't drink. And I have a few other fundamental lifestyle beliefs that are vastly different from most of the people that I'm at the conference at. And so, sure, you know, I look like the other men at the conference and I can understand to some degree, not necessarily exactly what it's like, but, you know, I know what it's like to not exactly fit all the time. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the goals because... You know, they've done a lot of academic research on promotions in the workplace and, you know, how to kind of get to the top. And the best thing for anyone's career, regardless of who you are, where you come from, what you identify as, the best thing that you could have in your career is a mentor or someone to kind of keep you under their wing. And, you know, if you're the only woman at a company, you might not have another woman there to help you. Um, not that only women can do that, obviously, but it's sometimes easier to talk to people about certain kinds of problems that you experience because some other people don't experience those. So it's just providing a network for women to get together, help each other find jobs, which is huge. I got my last job through Women Who Code and find those mentors, find those other people that you want to surround yourself with. So I'm curious. I I think this is a great idea as far as the mentorship is concerned, Uh, you know, in addition to the other goals of the of the group. How do you go about setting that up? Say I'm a new person in an area and I join uh, one of the networks. Is there like a process for establishing who will mentor a new member? No, that's been on our list of to do's. But the past since we've received our nonprofit status, our focus has been more on growth. So we've been focusing more on how to get new networks started in new places which has all sorts of interesting challenges because there are very, very vast different cultural expectations. For instance, in Brazil, it's very unusual for events to provide dinner, where in San Francisco, that's like every event in San Francisco we have has dinner because we don't expect people to eat at work or go home and then come back out. But in Brazil, that's not a thing. In Hong Kong, event spaces charge for the use of power and Wi-Fi which is just the standard thing of how they do. So we've been more trying to figure out ways to deal with those kinds of like logistical operations rather than, you know, creating a huge mentorship network, which is on our to-do list. Um, so usually how it works with new people when they come depends on the event. It's usually very free form in terms of people finding mentors. There's always more experienced women around. Uh, it's very rare to go to an event and not have someone, at least one person in the room who's more experienced than you, which has been amazing. So it's a lot more informal. The study groups that we do, which are free weekly events that have professionals working in the 
field. And then you can go and do a tutorial. Um, we have some self-guided ones. We have ones where there's actually a curriculum that everyone's supposed to follow. Those you get a lot more one-on-one -on -one attention if, obviously, if you want it. <laughs> and each night, the women who are working in the industry essentially act as mentors to the entire group. Um, and of course, you can keep in touch afterwards. A lot of these women who help mentor, I mean, I did it for a year and a half, you end up going to coffee with people and giving them advice or connecting them with job opportunities, you know, just because, I mean, we're all here to support each other. So you obviously mentor people because you enjoy it, not because you have to. But we are working on something for that. Uh, there's also another startup called Glassbreakers that is a peer-to-peer -peer mentoring company. They just started up. Uh, we're not affiliated with them in any official capacity, but I know that they're doing some really awesome work in that space too. So I'm, I'm wondering along these same lines, let's say that we have a listener who is a woman who either wants to get into a coding career or is working somewhere and they're thinking, yeah, this would be something that's really nice. And they find out that there's a local chapter or network. Um, what what can they expect when they start getting involved? I mean, is it just a mailing list? Are there meetups? What do yeah. the meetups look like? It's pretty much all meetups. Each network runs slightly differently. Um, San Francisco is kind of like the test pilot that we have for the things at scale because it's the biggest one. Our next biggest, I believe, is Denver Boulder, which has about 3,000 members, uh, if I remember correctly. So we try and help networks have at least one event a month. Um, obviously, the smaller the network, the kind of smaller the event will be, um, just because you need more people. And those, like when a network's just getting started, it usually does very kind of generic events, hack nights, lightning talks, and then they usually start doing the individual study groups. Because once you get into being like, oh, we have a JavaScript night, we have a Ruby night, we have a mobile night, we have a Python night, then you kind of start segregating your users, or not your users, but your members, and, you know, we want to make it as inclusive for everyone. So just starting out, it'll be a lot of those larger events that are a bit more focused on networking and panels, lightning talks, all usually featuring women. And then as it gets to a much larger size, like, you know, Boulder, Denver, San Francisco, you'll see a lot of the more specialty events popping up because you can sustain them over time. Women in Code San Francisco runs four events a week, I think we're doing now. Just not the most. We At one point, we were doing six, which was a little crazy. Uh, <laughs> wow. That's yeah. impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one of the really great things about the tech industry right now is that it's so supportive of these efforts. So events that happen in San Francisco, we don't pay a dime for them. Companies will provide food. They will provide space. They will provide Wi-Fi power, basically everything we need. So lots of in-kind donations, we like to call it. Although there are definitely networks elsewhere in the world, like I mentioned in Hong Kong, where you have to pay for power that will get a sponsor to give them money so that they can then pay for the things that they need. But it's most of our events are done at very low to no cost, which is amazing. And it lets us do more of them. So what parts of women who code are you getting the most value out of? Me personally, I still get a lot of value out of the network in San Francisco, personally. I mean, when I first moved here three years ago, the first meetup I went to was a Women Who Code meetup, and it was awesome. And I have so many friends that I've made just through meeting them at these events. So it's really, personally, it's been a fantastic thing because I moved to the city and I didn't know anyone. So it was great to kind of 
have a group of people who I could just find and hang out with and who are very welcoming and nice. So that's kind of what I still really like about it. And and that hasn't changed, which has been great, even though, you know, we've grown to this big size and there's all of these things going on in other countries. And like our CEO, Elena, is being flown all over the world for like press appearances. She was on um, the local, one of the local news stations last week here in San Francisco. So it's been a crazy, amazing ride, but at its core, it's still like, I could just show up to an event and talk with women and share experiences or help someone out, which has been just, I'm really glad that we've been able to keep that as we've grown. So for members who come into, say, a particular uh, network and they're looking for mentorship or help in a particular technology, if it's not available locally, um, are they sort of patched into the larger network? And, you know, is there an effort to try to, try to match them with help or mentorship across the country or globally? We haven't quite gotten there yet. Another thing that we're working on, we have this whole idea for like this huge membership site that we want to build, but you know, obviously it takes a lot of time and effort to make something super custom like that. And nonprofit pricing for a lot of those enterprise SaaS services is still really not that great. I've been looking into them. So believe it or not, it's usually pretty easy to find someone with some knowledge of whatever technology they're looking for within their own network. It's just about asking someone who has the connections and people are really willing to share their connections and say, oh, you want to learn Angular? I don't know Angular, but I have this friend who's really good at Angular. I'll connect you to. And then usually, you know, it might not stay within the community of people who identify as women, which is totally okay. So we also do have a nice big Slack chat for all the city directors or network directors worldwide. So we all kind of hang out in there and anyone who has questions or needs something specific can just pop in and ask them and we try and help them out as best we can. Um, so there's getting to be a lot more communication between the different directors, which is awesome. And we've been waiting a long time for that to happen <laughs> because there's a lot of them. There's over a hundred now of directors worldwide just making this happen in their cities. So aside from sort of the in-person meetups that are happening for the networks, beside the directors, are, are there any current sort of virtual meetings? Um, the reason why I'm asking is that I live in a rural area and I'm having the same problem just finding enough people locally or even regionally that uh, would show up for a meeting, uh, a meetup for programming or something technological related. And if you maybe cross that bridge and try to solve it. Yeah, that was not on our one of our big goals for this year, unfortunately. I know that there are a lot of mailing lists out there, um, especially for women. Um, I'm on two myself, Deb Tricks and Tech Lady Mafia. But, you know, virtual meetups are kind of difficult and they're a very, very different beast, <laughs> uh, which we haven't tackled because we've been trying to create those in-person connections. And that's what we've been mostly focused on. I'm a little curious. It seems like there are quite a few groups out there that do, you know, women or marginalized group focused technology groups. I don't know if I said that quite right, but I think it made sense. So what makes women who code different? Um, so you're probably talking about things like girls who code, black girls code. Um, there's pie ladies. Mm -hmm. uh, there's ladies who Rails code, Bridge. which is Rails Bridge, which is also different. So women who code is language agnostic, platform agnostic. And essentially, it's about women in technology. You don't necessarily need to be a programmer. Uh, we have a number of entrepreneurs and executives that are also members who just like being able to network with women like them or kind of help out the younger generation or those, you know, mentor someone to get them up. 
So we focus on that niche. Groups like Girls Who Code, um, App Camper Girls, which is one that the iOS and Mac community loves, Black Girls Code, those are more focused on getting the younger generation into technology and interested in programming thing. There's also uh, Girl Develop It and RailsBridge, which are both workshop-oriented. So RailsBridge and its affiliates, there's a mobile bridge that's been happening in San Francisco as they've been trying out some new curricula here for Android and iOS development. Those are workshop-centric, so they're focused on teaching skills to underrepresented groups in technology. And then, you know, there's a couple other, like, PyLadies is specifically for Python, but they do a lot of similar things, and the groups usually overlap when there's a PyLadies chapter in Women Who Code Network. They overlap significantly. So Women Who Code's kind of doing a slightly different niche, because we're not all about the teaching, although we do teach, we do make sure that we give resources wherever we can, but we're not about teaching, uh, which is what a lot of the other organizations in doing this kind of work do. So a couple other organizations that seem like they have a similar focus that I've run into that maybe aren't part of the same network, those like Geekettes, like they're active in the Twin Cities where I live. And I've worked with some people from Power to Fly, which is focused on you know getting women into tech careers that maybe weren't in them before. Uh, do you run across those groups? Me personally, no. <laughs> I've heard of Geekettes because I have some friends in Berlin. And Power to Fly, I have not heard of before. Uh, which I'm looking at their website right now. And so they seem to be a little bit similar. Um, Power to Fly seems more about hiring. Geekettes definitely seems a lot closer than, say, Girl Develop It to Women Who Code. So it's just about connecting and helping other women in the industry and organizing stuff. So, yeah. But neither of those are in San Francisco, (laughs) which is probably why Women Who Code popped up at a probably a similar time to some of these other groups. So I kind of want to veer into the little bit more, I hate to say controversial, but this is the area that people tend to argue about a little bit more. I'm curious, is there a need for groups like this? Oh, I know absolutely. I'm I know I'm teeing you up for some of the some easy <laughs> answers, but is there a need for groups like this and what issues specifically for women do they address? Absolutely, there is a need for groups like this because I'm trying to figure out where to start. Because there's, there's been so much research and so many articles written, even in the past year on this topic, it's become really, really big, which has been fantastic because there's all of these resources and we know a lot more now. So one of the biggest things that people get out of groups like Women Who Code, I mean, any of the groups that showcase underrepresented people in these careers is the fact that growing up, when you think of a programmer, you don't necessarily think of a woman in her late 20s, early 30s, living the life in a fancy apartment, you know, who goes to work and write codes all day. Like, that's not the kind of stereotype of a developer. So a lot of people, when they go into these careers, if they don't see anyone like them in more senior roles and executive roles then it's kind of harder to imagine yourself being in those shoes because you don't see anyone like you. So these groups help that problem, um, which is somewhat of one aspect of imposter syndrome, which is, you know, when you think that you're not good enough for something, even though you are because of, you know, cultural stereotypes and gendered expectations and biases and all sorts of sociology, psychology stuff that we all deal with on a daily basis. So... Yes. And I think that 
there's going to continue to be more of these groups. And I think that we're finally starting to see some change. I mean, last year was the first year that anyone can recall that major tech companies actually released diversity numbers. That's huge. Like knowing, you know, how many people are women, how many identify as, you know, genderqueer or, you know, how many Latinos, Latinas, like that, all that information is so useful and so important because tech industry is very, very dominated by one specific group right now. So anyone else, not in that one group, they're kind of like, eh, is this for me? So I think we're seeing a lot of these efforts in bringing diversity to the forefront. And it's been proven time and time and time again that more diverse teams, more diverse companies, more diverse boards will be more successful because you need that extra perspective that you don't have. Pinterest, for example, this, I think it was this year they added their first female board member when 74% of their users are women. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it took you how long? <laughs> okay, that's. I, I know, I'd be the perfect developer for Pinterest. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that kind of stuff where, you know, a lot of the like tech fashion companies, their boards are still very heavily male, and you're just like, okay, that's fantastic, but how do you understand? A friend of a friend is an entrepreneur at an accelerator, and there's a company making quote unquote men's fashion for women. And um she asked him once, what are you doing about the boob problem? And he didn't know. Like he was on the board of an accelerator and <laughs> making clothes for women and he didn't know how they were handling women figures. And it's just like, you didn't think about that? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a big heavy topic, but creating specific spaces for women to kind of or just any underrepresented group to just let down the barriers and talk and network and bring to the forefront the amazing things that all of these people are doing in technology because they're doing some freaking amazing things, let me tell you, I think is important. And I think that it's going to make this a better place for everyone to work. So what are some of the success stories from Women Who Code or any any of the groups that we're, we're talking about? Yeah. So there's so many. So Women Who Code has a weekly newsletter. And in every newsletter, there's at least one story. And we've been doing the newsletter for over a year. <laughs> let's say that I'm a company, because I know that this is an issue. Uh, let's say that I'm a company, you know, I go to work with all of my white dude buddies, and somebody brings up the topic of diversity, and they convince me that having diversity in my workplace is going to benefit the workplace. You know, they mm -hmm. show me the studies. I'm like, okay, I see these figures. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm behind this. We need to get diverse people in here. We need people with different backgrounds. You know, we'd like to get some people who are, you know, of color or women or, you know, some of these other, you know, diverse groups. How do they take advantage of a group like women who code to open up their company for diversity and hire some people who are going to add to diversity? The biggest thing to think about when you're in a position where you don't necessarily have a lot of diversity is you first kind of need to figure out why. <laughs> hmm. Because you need, like, if you want to improve your diversity, chances are you're probably doing something wrong. For example, job postings. I actually posted one on Twitter earlier today, like about a half hour before we started talking. It said, prior experience must include computer graphics, 3D, OpenGL, OpenGL ES, shaders, C++, Objective-C, Visual Studio, Xcode, development on Windows, Mac, and iOS, Agile Scrum, web development using JavaScript, PHP, C Sharp. 
and must make a mean sandwich. Yes. So a job posting like that, I mean, there'll probably be a few applicants, but a lot of underrepresented people in the industry don't necessarily apply to jobs unless they have all the qualifications, women especially. There was a study done that men will apply to jobs when they have about 50% of the qualifications. Women will apply when they have 80%, if not more, of the qualifications. Um, so there's a lot that can be done in the job posting side to make it sound nice and also not include like free beer, don't mention late nights, like all of like the kind of basics. And this company is programmer heaven. You know? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I can totally see some guy there looking at. <laughs> Looking at a, a list of qualifications and they meet 100% and they're like, I am like overqualified for this. <laughs> yeah. So not necessarily, yeah. you know, the best thing. And then there's stuff like hiring process. People from underrepresented groups, chances are, are, well, actually are much more likely to not actually have computer science degrees. So asking like big O notation and algorithms, which I know personally my day to day as an iOS developer, I've never needed to know. I don't have a CS degree, you know, that weeds out more people because you're like, oh, you don't have a degree from a top school in computer science. Well, we don't want you. Well, schools have the same diversity problems that we do in computer science programs. So you're already limiting your pool. I think um, O notation was actually, Graham Lee said that it actually stands for, oh, I forgot this. I had to look this up again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I rarely have to use it, so I, I always forget it. Well, the other thing is is that 90% of the code I write, it's fast enough. And so it's it's the other stuff where I'm looking at, okay, is there a better way to do this? And then I find another algorithm, plug it in, and see if that does it. So then I'll find out later on, oh, it's big O whatever, and, you know, big O N or big O 1 instead of whatever. So it, it almost never comes up. Yeah, having interview questions that are uh, much more practical, but also that are very universal. I have a friend who did a bunch of interviewing a couple months ago. She grew up in India, uh, so she not necessarily familiar with a lot of like American cultural norms that kids go through. And she was asked to program a battleship game, and she'd never played battleship. And she told the interviewer, and the interviewer did not do a very good job of explaining it and still made her try and write it even though she was like, I have no idea how this works, and they didn't help her with that. So, oh wow, you know, you kind of have to be careful of expectations because that's a big thing. And then, obviously, workplace culture. I mean, women are um, much more likely to be caretakers of any children. There was a study done at Harvard that the highest earning female executives with small children spend 25.2 hours on childcare per week. The male equivalent only spend 10.2. So it's still very culturally women take care of children. Therefore, women can't stay late. I have a friend who was working back in the Midwest and her and her husband didn't have kids, but they had dogs. <laughs> and so, you know, they both worked and most of his coworkers didn't had wives who didn't work. So they'd all stay late and then he'd get pressured to stay late because all of his coworkers were staying late because none of their wives worked. And then, so she would be the one to have to leave work early to go take care of the dogs all the time because she had a, you know, just the situation that worked out. So stuff like that, you know, obviously having very alcohol-centric cultures, a lot of people don't like that. Also, it tends to have a lot of problems happen when there's a lot of drinking, as we all know. <laughs> um, oh, yes. I've heard and stories. Then, yeah. And then also the things like benefits. And if you have a family of four and you're going to work for a startup, 
Is that startup paying for your health insurance? Are you paying for your own health insurance? Will they cover your children? Believe it or not, there's a lot of really small companies who just can't afford to do a lot of that. So they kind of self-select out the people who have dependents, the people who've had major health issues. I have a friend who has really terrible migraines because of some health issues she had. So like she can't work a regular schedule at all. She's a very productive person, but like her schedule is very intermittent, even though she can work 40 hours in a week. So there's a lot of barriers and companies who really, really, really want diversity. You kind of, you can't just do the whole, we're going to host a meetup and hopefully hire people from that. You actually have to make change to make sure that you're a welcoming space for people who are not like you. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, you brought up a few of the things that I didn't even recognize as, you know, impediments, some of them I'm quite familiar with, but it's just, you have to be, it sounds like you really have to be aware of all of the ways along the, the path that people get lost yep. and you make sure that you account for that so that you can give everyone the best opportunity or give your, actually really to give yourself the best opportunity to find good people who can come in and help your organization. Yeah. And I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with people around what qualities they look for in teammates. And while, you know, obviously for a technical person, the things that are said the most are like, you know, really good coding ability, like really, you know, smart person, problem solver, all that stuff. But a lot of your day to day ends up being communication and teamwork. Mm -hmm. And first of all, can you say that again? (laughs) (laughs) One of the most important skills sets you can have as a software developer are good communication skills and good teamwork and being a good member of a team. And first of all, interviews usually don't interview for that. It's kind of hard to interview for that. But also, like, I hear people all the time say that when they're thinking about hiring more diverse candidates, they think they have to, quote unquote, lower the bar, which is really not true. (laughs) It just means that you're not measuring the right things, because Mm -hmm. if someone comes along who has amazing communication skills, is a really, really great team player, but hey, might not know that one JavaScript library not like very well. Like, why would you not hire that person? Because they can learn. Like, it's a JavaScript library. It's not the end of the world if they're not familiar with the new version. But the communication and the teamwork stuff, like, that's a lot harder to teach someone than a JavaScript framework. I kind of want to restate this a different way, and that is is that the results matter. So if they communicate well, if, you know, all of the things that you're talking about are the things that lend to better factored code. They lend to easier to maintain code. They lend to better structure in the code. And all of these things are the things that are going to pay off down the line. So like you were saying, sure, you know, they don't know, you know, some obscure JavaScript library, but darn it, they do a really good job at figuring out what has to be done and doing it right the first time. That's priceless. Yeah. So, I mean, that's harder to look for than just yeah. like reading off a list of essentially quiz questions on the new and shiny. But, you know, it will make a huge difference. Yeah, I agree. The teamwork and communication aspect is really important. And it goes a long way to keeping cohesion and making teams successful. I mean, I've worked in places where, you know, during the hiring process, you know, they're like, we want rock stars. And I'm like, why do we want rock stars? It's not like bands stay together. <laughs> you know, it's just not a, a great precedent. You know, you want people who can actually work together and, and, and accomplish a goal as a, as a unit. 
Yeah, rock stars vomit all of the place, <laughs> and ninjas kill people. Yeah. <laughs> My friend Kate Hudson, a couple of weeks ago, had this great tweet about comparing programmers to race car drivers. And it was all sorts of, like, can't do anything without support of very large and an unacknowledged team can only go in a very, very short circular path. <laughs> I'll send the link for the show notes, but the responses step between really the two. really fast in a circle. Yeah. Um, the responses were just hilarious to that because she'd gotten, you know, obviously a recruiter thing that compared programmers to race cars. <laughs> yeah. So I have another question, and I know some people are going to be upset with me for asking this because a lot of people take it for granted. But I hear things like, you know, using the term guys or just some of the, the words we use. And I can see the arguments for some of it, but not for others. You know, like like guys, I think, is common enough vernacular to where it probably doesn't matter most of the time. But does it matter? Am I wrong? Oh, it totally matters. Okay. <laughs> I don't consider myself a guy. Like yeah, that has never enough. been, I would never use that word to describe myself okay. as much as people would like to say that that is gender neutral. It is unfortunately not. So it's stuff like that. I mean, I have friends at companies who actually created a guy's jar. Um, so they have a jar and you have to put a dollar in the jar every time you refer to a group of mixed gender people as guys. So if I'm out with my man buddies, <laughs> that, that sounded really awkward. <laughs> But if I'm out with my buddies and it's just men and I say guys, then whatever. Yeah. Okay. But, I mean, it's the whole there's no one here like you kind of thing. So uh -huh. if you refer to a group of mixed gender people as only one gender, it's just like, well, what about the other people? Yeah. But there's no real good word in English. Like English is lacking in the sense um, I have some, uh, some people I know use folks. As a um, southerner, I would propose y'all. Y'all. Yep. Yeah, I know very well. you use y'all. A little more proper, you all. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I do you all if I have to. Posse? Yeah. Posse? But in other cultures, I mean, I lived in Italy for two years, and I mean, if there's a mixed gender group of people, it's they, but it's masculine they. Yeah. And it just defaults that way. And so I think that colors my thinking a little bit because it seems normal to me. But I mean, language in general has yeah. been very gendered for a very, very long time. Yeah, that's, um, that's French, completely fair. Yeah, French, for instance, has a singular gender neutral, but it does not have a plural gender neutral. Yeah. So, which is nice that they at least have the singular. Uh-huh. <laughs> English doesn't have that. <laughs> we have they, and then you get grammar stabs. We're like, don't use they when you don't know the gender, but people still use it. Yeah, and I think ultimately, I mean, a lot of these conversations, for me anyway, boil down to people feeling welcome and people feeling like they can be involved and that they belong. So, you know, when I ask these questions, it's not because I, you know, I, I mean, I am skeptical sometimes of some of the arguments that I hear made. But, you know, if, if it makes people feel welcome, then it's something that I think we should all at least think deeply about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, changing a word, not that hard. Yeah. Well, it might yeah. be hard, but not that big of an effort, you know. Yeah. Pretty small. Yep. So one other thing that I hear disputed a lot, I can see where and why this happens sometimes, but I hear people all the time basically saying, well, we're not biased. If a woman applied here, she'd have the same chances as everybody else. So is it really that much harder for women to get jobs? So this is when I like quoting a scientific study done in 
I forget one scientific field, but some researchers out of, I'm not going to misquote the school, but academic researchers sent applications for lab assistants to multiple different labs around the country. Exact same resumes, some with a woman's name at the top, some with a man's name at the top. Exact same resumes. And the male named resume got about 50% of the labs responded positively saying, Yes, we'd like to interview this candidate. The women, exact same resume, was down to 24%. Oh, wow. And in general, the academics rated the uh, man's resume to be stronger, um, that he had more potential, and that, you know, he would excel at this position when it's the exact same resume. <laughs> so it's not explicit. It's, it's a bias it's, that people have they don't even see. It's unconscious bias, yes. There's been an amazing amount of research done in the past few years, specifically on that topic. And it's just kind of everywhere. I even saw a startup recently that it's a recruiting tool that what it does is it anonymizes resumes, mm. uh, which is some larger companies do it. I mean, not really, really large companies, but there are some companies I know in San Francisco that do that. So it goes through a process where someone applies, the name gets taken off, the pronouns all get changed. And then, you know, the hiring manager, whoever scans resumes, looks at it once all of the identifying information has been taken out. And that leads to many, many more, not just women, but people from underrepresented groups. They did similar studies with traditionally uh, Latino, Latina names or African-American names and very similar results where the same resume with like a white man name, like a, you know, John Smith versus like Lakeisha Thompson or something like John Smith would get way more, you know, be like, yes, we'd hire this, then Lakeisha, which is just a random name. I don't actually know anyone named Lakeisha, but it's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of things that happen in our heads. And this isn't just like a problem for men. This is a problem with everyone. Yeah. Um, because that's how culture, especially in America, you know, favors specific kinds of names, specific genders, that kind of stuff. So, no, I mean, actually, I've actually seen this happen. I mean, I, I mean, I know it's anecdotal, but I was a part of a hiring process at one point and I've actually seen it take place and recognized it while it was happening. We had a couple of candidates and they had similar experience. And just to listen to like during the roundtable, how the female candidate was described versus the male candidate. And I spoke up and said, wait a minute, you know, we just had this other person that we that came in and we talked to them. Why are we not saying the same thing about potential and things like that? We're not even using the same language. Mm -hmm. And it's just one of those things where it's like it became apparent and uh, just seeing it, it's kind of unnerving. It's just kind of like we have to be really, I think we have to be hyper vigilant about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. how do you compensate for it without going like too far the other direction? Well, in that instance, it was just a matter of just bringing up the fact that the, the yeah. previous person was. So you shine a light on it. And... Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of that. And, you know, just being aware of like when you see, you know, a person's name or even more common in this industry is a company name that you recognize on a resume or a very well-known college or university, same thing happens where you're just like, oh, this person went to Stanford. They must be awesome, but they could be a total and complete jerk. <laughs> right. um, but, you know, or they could have, you know, never actually shipped anything, but hey, they went to Stanford. I'm not saying Stanford's a bad school. It's just yeah. <laughs> Stanford's a fantastic school. I apologize to anyone listening who went to Stanford. I did not mean to be mean there. No, but it's, I mean, it, it's a fair point. You know, just like any other school, they have terrific people that go there and they have absolute jerks that go there. 
Yeah. You can't know that from seeing Stanford on a resume. Yep. Just being aware of those things and trying to combat them wherever possible. I was in one interview panel for a position and there were two people in the room who were like, this person is not technical enough. And we're all just like, she has over 10 years of software development experience. What are you talking about? Right. <laughs> like, no, she has not worked on a Python application in a very long time, but <laughs> pretty sure she's technical enough. Just saying. <laughs> yep. Is that one of the other issues though that you kind of run into? Like because of, you mentioned um, having family, like women being away from the workplace for a longer stretch of time and then returning into the field. So maybe they, uh, the candidate was had technical experience and they were developing, you know, years ago, but now sort of the landscape has changed or new languages and platforms and whatnot. Yes. No, there was actually a fantastic article in model view culture that came out like yesterday about how the leaky pipeline is a terrible analogy because anyone that, you know, comes out of, drops out of the tech industry, which usually happens with women having babies be perfectly honest, women usually, you know, spend a lot more time with the babies and they take time off work and all that stuff. And how those very technical, very smart women who decided to focus on children coming back into the industry, it's a lot harder for them. Facebook actually has a programming bootcamp called Mother Coders that is to solve that specific problem, which I found really interesting. But yeah, a lot of it has to do with potential. And I mean, a number of women who go to women who code events are in that situation where they've been out of the industry for X number of years and they want to learn the new frameworks, and the new stuff, because that's what companies ask about. And unfortunately, you know, the last time you worked with JavaScript was in 2001. Things have changed a lot. So you might not be able to showcase your skills and talents as well in an interview because we ask about JavaScript features now, not necessarily how would you solve this problem given any constrain any language or anything. So yes, it is definitely a problem. Companies haven't quite gotten there yet to, you know, fixing that a lot, except for apparently Facebook. But it is another thing to think about. I mean, ageism also within, especially like San Francisco tech area is definitely a thing with, I mean, older women, especially. It's just like, you're how old? And it's just like, actually, these people are really, really amazing. Yeah. I've also seen ageism in kind of establishment companies work the other way where somebody is apparently too green for the position even though they've basically been doing that job for five years yep and so it you know it's it's really interesting just the perception that people have over who should be in that position and how that affects the judgment that they make about it oh absolutely and that's one of the reasons that having really really good job requirements or i mean job postings are one thing but i'm a big advocate for like you have your public job posting, whatever, and then internally you have a list of technical skills, non-technical skills, communication skills, team member qualities, like, and you have that and you try and find someone that matches that giant list, which you don't want to tell people about beforehand because then no one will apply. Um, but you still want to have that. So like if someone is really good at talking through problems and you're like, that would be a great person to have on my team that you make sure that everyone you interview, you try and find that skill in versus you only do it for some candidates, but not for others. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask, we've talked a lot about hiring and finding jobs, and I'm sure that there's more that people could, you know, learn about this stuff and, and people who can help them figure it out. So I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. But first, I want to go into the community at large. So what mm -hmm. can we as a community as you know, an iOS or larger tech programming community, what can we do to make 
the community feel more welcoming, more open? So it's a lot of just making really inclusive spaces. Things like having code of conducts for meetups. If you are having an event and you want to have alcohol, which is perfectly fine. I'm not saying don't ever have alcohol. But if you only have pizza and beer, well, first of all, not everyone likes beer. There are people who like wine or cider or cocktails. Not everyone can eat pizza. There are people who are gluten-free, dairy-free, you know, I'm dairy-free and I don't drink, so I wouldn't be there. Yeah. So it's about making events as inclusive as possible. So all the Women of Code events in San Francisco provide food. And on our RSVP form, we ask if you have dietary restrictions. Like, it's a simple question. <laughs> like, we are giving you food. Let us make sure that you can eat our food. Everything like that. I know a number of open source projects have started to have codes of conduct. I know CocoaPods has one for just making sure that people working on the tool are being respectful to everyone in their community. And then, you know, within your own organizations, I mean, that's where a lot of the change really has to happen. And it's just, you know, making sure that someone else sitting at the table isn't getting looked over for a project. There have been a lot of really interesting studies done on how at very, very large meetings, certain kinds of people essentially get ignored. It's something really intelligent. There was one article, I don't remember where it came from, but basically a woman had said something completely ignored. Like five minutes later, a man who knew her and was like, knew kind of what was going on, said the exact same thing. And everyone's like, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> I'm not joking that that like that actually happens. Um, so kind of being an advocate for the people within your team or within, you know, your circle of influence rather to make sure that everyone's getting equal opportunities and that, you know, the person who doesn't speak up all the time is not just getting bug after bug and not able to really showcase themselves. And then it's just kind of learning about other people. And just being empathetic to lived experiences and not doubting people when you say, oh, this thing happened to me. And don't be like, oh, that never happens. I don't know what you're talking about. That could never happen. Well, it did happen. It happened to that person. <laughs> so it's respect, it's empathy, and it's actually working towards those goals instead of just being passively sitting back and being like, you know, that person over there is doing a real job of being inclusive. I give them a thumbs up because that doesn't really help. Awesome. All right, so now I'd like to know if I'm a company out there and I want to increase the diversity in my company and I'm I'm looking at things and I'm just not seeing anything that really jumps out at me. You know, I listen to your advice and I I don't see, you know, we're not we're not having beer parties and we're not, you know, we're not advertising that and our job description, mm -hmm. you know, is pretty much right on what we need and doesn't have a whole bunch of extraneous or extra stuff, but it doesn't seem to be working. Are there people out there that can help companies actually diversify? And how do you find them? Yes. One of my picks is from a woman named Ash Dryden who does consulting. Exactly on I that. Love she also Ash. has she also has a book coming out called The Diverse Team, which you should all pre-order. I already pre-order a copy of it. So there are a couple of consultants out there who do do these things. And there's also other organizations that are focusing on hiring. The ADA Initiative, which is the nonprofit who runs Grace Hopper, the Women in Computing Conference, they just opened up a resume database, essentially. And there are a couple other ones that do similar things. So reaching out to consultants, reaching out to organizations, women who code, in every newsletter that goes out, there's job postings. And also reaching, like, I get asked by a lot of my male friends, we have this position open and there are no women applicants. What can I do? And I ask them, do you know a single 
woman or member of an underrepresented group that you would want to refer to that position. And if they say no, <laughs> that is a problem. Right. Um, so it's about getting the people in your organization to actively grow diverse networks themselves. Because, you know, it's one thing for a company to sponsor an event that's focused around diversity. It's another thing for the people at that company to be active in the community and fostering diversity as much as I can. That second one speaks of a much, much higher commitment to actually changing things where the other one is just kind of like a, well, we, we had the thing, we had a budget to do a diversity event. So we did the event, you know, which is great. <laughs> it's a great first step. Getting a budget to do a diversity related <laughs> event is a first step. Yes. <laughs> but if you stop there, you stop there. Yeah. I can totally, uh, yeah, I just want to step in and just say kind of the same thing. I mean, my network has become more diverse because I've gotten to know people who are, you know, in these underrepresented groups. And then they've introduced me to other people that they know that I never would have met that also fall into these groups. But it's not a function of, oh, you need to introduce me to more women. It's just, uh, oh, hey, I think you'd be interested to know this other person. And it's just a natural thing that comes out of it. And so if you go out and you find people who are comfortable meeting people and comfortable within this arena of helping people meet other people and they have these diverse networks, I think that's really where, it, at least for me, it's made a difference. And so, you know, I've gotten to know you, Michelle, a little bit. I've gotten to know Saranyit Bark, who does the Code Newbie podcast fairly well, and she's introduced me to several people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Jessica Kerr on Ruby Rogues, Amy Knight on JavaScript Jabber, and then just some other men that I know that are well-connected to diverse groups that, you know, are like, hey, you should meet so-and-so. And it's just a function of that person being a very cool person. They happen to be a woman or a person of color or Hispanic or whatever. But then I have that diversity around me, and then it just kind of builds from there. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, anything else that we should jump in on here? I have one specific question. We talked about sort of how to promote diversity and help uh, in general in the, in the larger landscape. But I wanted to ask more specifically as a man, like, how can I help women who code specifically? Helping women code specifically? Well, um, we are a nonprofit and we do accept donations, okay. <laughs> <laughs> obviously. So donating to any of these causes will enable a lot of things to happen. There is a, I, don't, I wouldn't call it, it's not a startup, but it's a group of people who recently started doing something. It's called Fun Club. Let me just say it's called Fun Club. And what Fun Club is, is every month, a large group of people each donate $100 and that amount of money goes towards some sort of diversity initiative. So if you don't necessarily want to donate to one particular cause, they pick a different cause each month. And I think last month was a donation to AlterConf, which is another thing you could do is support AlterConf. It is a conference series that happens around the country that focus on marginalized voices, underrepresented groups, all sorts of kind of auxiliary to tech things, but it's still... Like, I know a lot of people in San Francisco who've gone to the one that happened here a couple months ago. So being involved in that and, I mean, just basically getting involved in whatever you can, whether it's volunteering time. I know a lot of teachers, like for RailsBridge and I think some girl developer teachers are not always women, but they do it volunteering usually. So stuff like that, just kind of get involved in what way makes sense to you. So... Yeah, and I know that some of those workshops, they also do a little bit of training with the teachers beforehand 
Yep. And so they, they help them understand what approaches work to make people feel more welcome. Yep. RailsBridge especially is, if you've never taught before, going to a RailsBridge teacher training is a very good introduction. Yes. So one other question, if people, I know there are people out there who are kind of skeptical of the whole, of a lot of the things we've talked about, you know, with some of these issues that women face in tech. Are there good places for people to go get these studies and kind of look at them and and really see, okay, this is how they did the study, this is how they got the information, and this is what it means so that they can start to kind of go, okay, I see some proof here. Maybe I'll start taking it a little more seriously. Yes, but they're kind of scattered right now. So two of my picks actually come from a publication called Model View Culture, which is focused on technology, culture, and diversity media um, is their kind of tagline. So they do a lot of articles on underrepresented groups, things like mental health, things like activism, and the intersection of technology and politics. So they have a really like wide variety of articles, and I guarantee you'll find something that interests you. And then there is, I'm trying to find the name of it, and I will make sure it gets into the release notes of uh, Brianna Wu recently started a Daring Fireball-like site, but for more feminist media. Um, so that's another really great place to go, which I'll make sure the name escapes me. I will find it and make sure it's in the notes. <laughs> great. Yeah, we've had Brianna on this show before, so and she's awesome. So cool. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks then. Alondo, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I have two picks this week. Uh, first pick is a uh, talk from AltConf having to do with iOS animations, and I uh, was given by Marin Todorov. It got me excited I, uh, about some simple ways I can animate an app I'm working on. Um, it's really accessible. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So I definitely recommend checking it out. And it's not that long. It's a pretty short, like 30 minutes. Uh, it's really good. Uh, the second pick is uh, a, something we discovered at work. We play a lot of games, both online and at our uh, biannual uh, company meetings. One of the games we play, in addition to the countless board games, is poker. And so there is a poker theory and analytics course. It's one of the MIT open coursework classes uh, that we thought was hilarious and, and uh Really probably beneficial before our next uh, company meeting in, in October. And I think some other people will probably get a kick out of it, at least learning how to play uh, so that, or having a basic understanding of the game. So those are my picks. All right. I've got a quick pick here. I've been playing a lot with Paracord. I'm really into Scouts. I've been doing Cub Scouts for about seven or eight years. And I actually do the training for leaders every month uh, at Roundtable. And we did a round robin, and one of the leaders there at that's on staff, he did a paracord demonstration. Of course, I couldn't go because I was teaching my session, but afterward, he showed us how to tie these cool things with paracord. So I've made a little key fob uh, that goes on my key ring um, out of paracord, and then I've got a neckerchief slide that I tied with a Turk's head knot or a woggle, and basically, it's kind of a braided ring. And uh, anyway, so it's it's a lot of fun. I'm looking for other projects to do with some paracord. And anyway, so I'm going to pick that. And then he had this cool little case for a Bic lighter, and you just slide it in there, and then you put the lid on. And it has a button on the back that actually strikes the striker and holds the button down that releases the butane. And then it it's almost like a mini uh, blowtorch. And so it was pretty cool. So I'm going to pick that, too, just because I thought it was neat. But, yeah, so those are my picks, paracord and mini blowtorch lighter thingy. Michelle, what are your picks? <laughs> I already talked about Model View Culture. Um, I was going to pick two articles from there. I'll just make sure they're in the release notes. 
these are kind of related to what we talked about today because people always ask for resources. So there is a woman named Kate Heddleston who did its awesome talk at PyCon about call. It's called How Engineering Environments Are Killing Diversity. Um, there's a talk and also a five-part uh, blog post series on it, um, which brings up all sorts of things from general diversity, uh, microaggression, stereotype threat, all the kind of stuff that if you have never delved into this stuff before, it's a really good introduction. I also talked about Ash Dryden, which I guess I won't pick. Um, and then... Oh, go ahead. Ash is a uh, friend of mine. Ash is great. So I was uh, going to pick an article called The Responsibility of Diversity, um, which kind of goes into the how, why of diversity. And then my last pick is completely unrelated. So there's a conference next month called 360 iDev. It's awesome. Um, I'm speaking. I'll be there. And I would like to pick... There's a conference proposal workshop on uh, the Sunday before the conference run by uh, my friends Kate and Chuki, which is going to be super fun. And if you have ever wanted to get into conferences or um, kind of get some behind the scenes information on what it's really like, that is going to be a fantastic resource for anyone. I don't think it'll be recorded, unfortunately, but they run Technically Speaking, which is a newsletter. So... I am looking forward to that one. I will be at 360, and I'm excited about that. Yeah, I'll see you there. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Have some fun for me. Will do. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks for coming, Michelle. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we will wrap this up, and we will catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreakShow.com slash forum. 